This is an RNZ podcast. When Korean-American journalist Jean Lee visited New Zealand five years ago and dropped in on us here at Media Watch, she had one of the trickiest jobs in world journalism, establishing and running the first international news agency bureau in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. That country was rock bottom in every index of global press freedom, and people there even needed government permission to speak to international journalists. So five years ago, the idea of Western journalists getting anywhere North Korea's leader was absurd. Indeed, back in 2014, Seth Rogen made a comedy movie about journalists being invited to North Korea to meet Kim Jong-un. Hello, who this? This is the Secretary of Communication for North Korea. Our Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un is interested in doing an interview with Dave Skylark. Hello, North Korea! I spent a lot of time with Kim and I think he's not a bad guy. Five years later, thanks to Donald Trump's unorthodox diplomacy, North Korea has been in the headlines much more, and Gene Lee has been back in New Zealand, this time as an analyst working for the Washington-based think tank, the Wilson Center. But now that North Korea is much more newsworthy, and her former employers have a permanent presence on the ground in the capital, is the world getting a more reliable picture in the media of what's really happening in North Korea? I asked Gene Lee about that, and also whether the media diet of people inside North Korea, where the media is totally state controlled was also changing with the times in any meaningful way. The bureau is still there. We've had very few journalists go in since then. Uh, and unfortunately, I would have liked to have seen that that uh, bureau expand. Uh, but I think it just shows how challenging it is to maintain the kind of access that I had. And so the pressure uh, will be on the next bureau chief who's in charge of that operation to establish his own personal relationship with the North Koreans and the North Korean staff and really try to push the envelope. You know, it's a very personal decision when you're on the ground in North Korea, whether you choose to push the envelope and really push for better access or whether you stick to the guidelines that are laid out. So I can't, you know, I can't say... Because at any point, if you decide to push, you know, the government could say, well, sorry, we're going to take away the licence, close the bureau, and there'd be nothing you could do in a a state as authoritarian as, as that one. Exactly. It's very hard. Each journalist has to make that decision for himself, for herself, how far they want to push, what kind of how they want to conduct themselves, I, I think it's just very stressful to constantly push. So I suppose p- perhaps not to the kind of breakthrough you and the rest of the world's journalism community might have hoped for, but of course maybe you didn't know what to hope for because it was a step into the unknown. Precisely. You know, I was the first one, which is always the toughest, I think, in the sense that you have to blaze that trail. Uh, but I hope that I laid a path and at least blazed that trail so that other journalists can follow in my footsteps and, and pick up the baton. Uh, we have a couple journalists who've made a number of tri- trips. Uh, CNN's Will Ripley has made quite a number of trips, uh, not having established a bureau, but as a visiting correspondent. And I should point out that the French news agency, AFP, since I left, has opened a bureau there. And so we do have another Western news outlet in Pyongyang. Uh, Again, the AFP bureau chief in Seoul is the one who's in charge of that operation in Pyongyang. So he goes in from time to time for a few weeks at a time to manage that operation. 
Uh, their photographer has done very good work at Jones. Uh, so we are seeing, so since my time, we have seen the expansion of that little foreign press corps. Uh, I would like to see more, but this is a time in journalism where we don't see a whole lot of new bureaus being established overseas. Uh, and um, I would like to see more correspondence on the ground. At the moment, we have too few. Coincidentally, the time you were last here, that movie, The Interview, had just come out where the thought of journalists travelling to the country was thought to be so outlandish um, that it was part of the plot of this uh, this strange comedy. Uh, I mean, since then, it's no longer so outlandish, is it? That is one thing that has changed our perception and our understanding of Kim Jong-un. He really kept himself apart in those early years while he was trying to consolidate, working on consolidating power. Uh, and so that meant that he was a little bit more, he was really kind of a caricature in the minds of the Western world. And that's how something like the interview even came about. The fact that we saw the leader of North Korea as a cartoonish figure, I mean, many people still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's much more real to us now because he stepped out onto the international stage. He it has been now... More than a year, he made his first uh, diplomatic debut, really, in 2018 by meeting with the South Korean president in the DMZ um, last spring. And since then, it's been kind of a steady PR push on his part to emerge as, as a diplomatic statesman. And that, in some sense, has normalized him. So we've gone kind of the opposite direction. I think five years ago, we really saw him as a cartoonish figure. He wasn't real. He was somebody who was in this far-off country that was very mysterious to us and somewhat of a cartoonish character. But now he's much more real to people. And I would say that we've gone perhaps the other direction in, in that He's, we've normalized him in a sense. And there's a danger to, to that as well. We should always remember that he is the leader who carry, is a leader who does carry out fairly repressive policies toward his people. And uh, we shouldn't forget the human rights issues that remain a concern uh, and then have not been addressed in in this diplomacy. So is it possible that because of this diplomacy and the, the unusual character of these two leaders has distracted the world's media in a sense? Because I can recall, um, you know, 20 years ago, I used to work at BBC World Service in the UK. And back then it was very difficult to get, there were reports that there were famines at that time. There'd been poor harvests. It was very, very difficult, apart from perhaps the Red Cross. There was very few channels to get accurate information about that. Now we see images of diplomacy and we see images from Pyongyang, which is not like the rest of the country. Is the story of what's going on in the hinterland, the rest of the country, the majority of the population, is that not being told any better than it was, say, five years ago? We have to be aware that by relying on the narrative provided by Pyongyang, that we are only getting one tiny piece, and it is propaganda. And it's not to say that the images that we're seeing of the capital city uh, are fake. It's, it is true that we're starting to see more construction. There are more cars, taxis, certainly more consumer products in the capital. The capital is really the center of the elites, and their lives are improving. For me, though, what we lack when we don't have correspondence on the ground uh, is what's happening in the rest of the country. And our international correspondents like AFP, Agence France Presse, or AP, your former organization, are they any more able to tell that story now that they're established in the country? 
if they push for it, if they push for that access, they can um, get out to the countryside. But I do think it's important for us to uh, show what life is like for most North Koreans rather than just that 10%, the elites who live in Pyongyang. We need to understand how the rest of the population is living because if you look at the figures coming from aid groups on the ground from the United Nations, this is a population of 25 million 70% of them, according to the UN, struggle to get food on the table. Many of them are going without the basic necessities. And so we need to remember that though the picture that North Korea likes to present is one of strength and unity, uh, that we're only getting one piece of that puzzle. And we need to make sure that we are fleshing that out with a more realistic view of what's happening to the rest of the population. And five years ago, you told me that um, uh, North Koreans needed government permission, official permission to talk to an international reporter um, and also that international reporters needed permission to travel um, around the country. Still the same five years later? Still the same. We should remember that North Koreans do not have freedom of movement, freedom of speech, and foreigners do not either when they're on the ground. And that's something that certainly if North Korea starts to open up, which I hope they do, uh, that's something that we will need to continue to push for, not only for foreigners on the ground, but for North Koreans. It is a very difficult place to report. Uh, It is true that once you put a microphone in front of a North Korean, they are going to repeat only the propaganda, because that is what is safest. So it's very hard to get an accurate sense for what's happening on the ground, because they have to watch out for their own safety. They're very mindful of the fact that everything they say is being listened to, and that they will be held accountable. And so that compromises the reporting that we do on the ground. However, it's when you can get away from that type of formal interview, if you can speak the North Korean dialect, and you can communicate with them that you might get a better sense for who they are as people, what their preoccupations are, what their concerns are. And so we do need to have uh, more of a pipeline of Korean speakers who are going into North Korea as well. And also you've mentioned uh, the training of journalists which is uh, in North Korea, which is fascinating. So AP um, helped out with that. I think there's even a, a New Zealander um, involved as part of that team Um I that, did, that's yeah. an interesting task, isn't it? Training journalists who presumably work for a completely government-controlled media, uh, media structure. Part of my objective was for them to understand how Western journalists do journalism. We don't do propaganda. And by training these, with these training sessions, I could explain to them how we do reporting in a sense so they could understand what kind of access we needed mm-hmm. and how it is we go about our jobs. You know, they're so closed off to a certain degree. They see things through the filter of their own experience, their own system. Likewise, we do too. Just like it's unhelpful for us to look at North Korea only through our framework and our filter of being um, people who grow up in in a relatively free world. If we look at North Korea through our only our filters, then we're not going to understand North Korea. We have to also go... Uh, a little bit further and try to understand where they're coming from. Likewise, the North Koreans only see see things through their own experience. So by having Americans on the ground or working side by side by American uh, or foreign journalists, they have a little bit of exposure to how how the rest of the world thinks and sees things. So it's very important to play that role because even when you look at negotiations now – Each side is looking at this situation from their own perspective. And until they understand 
the perspective of the other side, they're probably not going to be effective in that negotiation. We have to understand the person sitting across from us. Uh, so I had, yeah, I had some ulterior motives, which was give them a little training so they understand where I'm coming from and what is it is I'm trying to do. Uh, but I should point out that North Koreans are actually hungry for training, hungry for expertise. Uh, the average North Korean loves any kind of education they can get. They were keen to learn English. They were keen to learn all the technology that we were able to offer them. And this is something that, apart from journalism, I think we should be thinking about is if we do want the North Koreans to rejoin or to join, I should say, the international community in the future, economically, legally, we also need to give them the tools and the training to reach that goal, uh, to rise to the occasion. And that means understanding international law, understanding international business practice. And so that's a step in my new capacity working at a think tank that I am considering is Okay. We as far want... as journalists can see, the really, really basic things as well. Like, for example, if you supply a photograph to a picture agency and it's digitally altered, they simply can't use it. It's, it's not usable. That might not even occur to them in a country where, you know, things are altered to fit in a state-controlled media. Uh, that's absolutely right. Some of it is, in the, in the framework of journalism, understanding what our standards are internationally in terms of photoshopping is something that I spent a lot of time trying to explain, that if photos are altered, that we have certain standards internationally uh, and that they need, to they need to do their best to adhere to them if they want us to transmit their photos or share their photos. Uh, and I think they've improved on that front. That's one thing we discussed is how do you create photos that we can use internationally? So it's a small way to try to get them... Uh, to join the international fall, but it was our way. It was really our avenue. And finally, Jean, what's changed in the last five years or so since we last spoke about what North Koreans themselves get in their own media? Um, you'd be one of the few people, I guess, that could actually see it, understand it, read it, and interpret it, and whether the diet's actually changed an awful lot in that time, given the high level of control of, uh, of what's published there. We are seeing some interesting things in the media, uh, certainly on state TV, playing around a little bit with technology, trying to modernize their broadcasts. But U.S. content and South Korean content are still largely banned in North Korea. Yeah, when we last spoke, I think Madagascar, the movie, <laughs> the Disney movie, had just screened in North Korea. And at the time I thought, well, so what? It's just a cartoon for kids. What impact would that have? And you were saying, no, no, look, here's talking animals describing you know, life in a New York City Zoo. Um, you know, these are things that wouldn't be aired in, in any other way. So so it's a good step. So the only American content that we're seeing on state TV or that has, is sanctioned are these cartoons and animations. And it's a good first step. There's some interesting things that I've seen in North Korea as well. Uh, if you go to the SciTech complex, which is this big science uh it's it's a science center that Kim Jong-un has built. Um, you do see, for example, they have these signs up, poster boards with internet addresses. Mm. And some of them advertise American scientific journals with oh. internet, with URLs. Uh, so it's interesting. So they're teaching them that these exist, th these resources exist. But what they want to do is vet all those resources. So it's interesting what I've seen since the time I've been there is that they are bringing in more foreign material. 
but they're telling their people, let us vet it and tell you it's safe to read. So there is far more foreign content in that, in North Korea than we may assume. And the ability to share it through these uh, small networks. Their intranet portals. Mm-hmm. Um, they still don't have the kind of access that I would like to see. They can't just jump on the internet and Google. Most of them don't have access to the World Wide Web. Uh, but we're starting to see a lot more foreign content on their intranet sites. But in terms of daily newspapers, television, radio broadcasts, still very much... Still pretty limited. ...official state news agency, KCNA, and lots and lots of news about the Supreme Leader. Exactly. If you go to KCNA, that's the state news agency website, it'll be full of coverage of Kim Jong-un, and um, uh, they do have some sections that do have some foreign news, but carefully vetted uh, to promote their propaganda. So you have to look at that as propaganda. What I find fascinating is looking at North Korea's soap operas. The the North Korean regime is all the propagandists are, are always looking for inventive and entertaining ways to promote party policy. And so I started looking at the soap operas because here's a way for them to promote party policy but make it fun. So you get to see how they package it in a way to appeal to the masses because North Koreans are like any of us. They want a little bit of drama or a little bit of comedy or a little bit of humor um, with that messaging. And so I find that fascinating. I've been studying those soap operas as a way to understand how the policy is shifting, how the messaging is shifting under Kim Jong-un. And what sort of things do they insert into these soap operas to convey a message that they want the people to take on board? One of the interesting things is I do believe that under Kim Jong-il, the the late father of the current leader, they went through his rule lasted for 17 years. And one of the things that the regime did during that period was tell the people that he was their father, that their first loyalty had to be to the state rather than to their families. But I do think it resulted in a breakdown in the the fabric of traditional family life in North Korea. And perhaps made it easier for people to defect because by defecting, you leave your family behind. Mm. And one thing I've seen in North Korean soap operas is an emphasis on the family. And I think I, would, I, should, I see that as an attempt to return to the traditional family um, unit as being the most important structure, social structure. Because for 17 years, they tried to rip that apart and put the state first. So it's really interesting seeing the reassertion of the importance of family, which is a traditional Korean value. And one of the uh, reasons for doing this might be that it would then perssuade people that it would be harder to leave the country or, or attempt to do it. Because That's my extrapolation be because in each of these dramas that I analyzed, there was a runaway. There was somebody who ran away, who was frustrated by life or by his situation, and it ranged in age. Sometimes they were children, children who were frustrated, and and there was always this emphasis on what it would do to your family if you ran away. So fascinating. And perhaps this was a proxy for defection. I just think that it's interesting that they're trying to address these issues so directly in their soap operas. Uh, and an acknowledgement in these soap operas that... You know, for example, some of these characters have their own ideas and it's hard for them that they struggle to carry out the group mission. So an interesting acknowledgement of individualism and then giving them the tools through this propaganda, 
through these soap operas, which are propaganda, on how to deal with that. So it's fascinating if you look at it in terms of what, considering what they're trying to address and what they're trying to tell their people and how to deal with it. You see all kinds of things like power outages, how to deal with power outages, uh, how to deal with the self-criticism sessions. So all kinds of aspects of daily life are addressed in these soap operas. So even if you don't go to North Korea, just by analyzing the messaging that is transmitted to the people is fascinating reading and is is ripe for analysis. So even though I don't go back uh, as often now, I do try to try to keep on top of what's happening inside the country through sources like their state media. That was Jean Lee, who set up and ran the first ever international news agency bureau in North Korea for the Associated Press from 2012 onwards. Now she's an analyst and a director with the US-based think tank, the Wilson Institute.